You're listening to Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry with Michael Parisi. Hi, my name is Michael Parisi. I've been a part of the music industry for over 30 years. I've worked in all facets of the business, from promotions, marketing, A&R and artist development. I've also worked for and with major record labels. I've run my own labels and my music publishing company, and I'm still an artist manager today. So take a seat in the room with me as I talk with some of the biggest movers, shakers, and visionaries of the music industry. There'll be lots of stories, insights, and intel that you won't hear anywhere else. So sit back, relax, and welcome to Vinyl Tap. John Watson is arguably one of the best artist managers Australia has ever produced. His CV and roster essentially speaks for itself. It almost needs no introduction. Combined, the likes of Silverchair, Missy Higgins, Wolfmother, Pete Murray, Gautier, The Presets and Birds of Tokyo have sold over 20 million albums globally. And today, he still finds time to manage Midnight Oil, Jimmy Barnes and Cole Chisel, who he also co-manages with his good friend John O'Donnell. He's a Sydney Swans diehard, and trust me, I've had many battles with him over the years with my team Hawthorne, as much as he is a fan of Bruce Springsteen. Above all, though, he's a true champion and stalwart of the business and of Australian music. He's got a lot to say, and he definitely needed no prodding when I caught up with him in Sydney recently. So here we are in Surrey Hills with uh, John Watson. John, great to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. Last time I saw you, you weren't looking this fit, Michael. No, it's wasn't impressive. Looking this fit, it was intimidating. But the last time I saw you, we were ribbing each other about Hawthorne and Sydney, if you recall. Yes. We had a friendly rivalry back in the day, didn't we? Back we 10 years ind- ago. We did indeed. There was there were quite a few good Hawthorne-Sydney battles and then a really horrible one. Yeah, 2012, you, you won that one. You gave it to me for, for weeks. Oh, I'm sure I did. You did. You did. And then, and then, but I got, my, I got mine back. In what, 2014. What happened in 2014? We won by 11 goals. I remember that. <laughs> anyway, I'm taking a piss. So, John, <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for being here. And thanks for taking the time. Let's kick off with your early career because a lot of people wouldn't know that you actually started in a band, right? Yeah. I mean, I started out, uh, I grew up in North Queensland in Townsville mm. and um, worked in record stores up there as a kid and started a band with some friends. Uh, we put out a, a single and it started getting played on Triple J. So we moved to Sydney. Double you know, J or Triple J? Triple J, oh, yeah. um, okay. not quite that old. Yes. Um, and uh, this, is, this is all 1987. And uh, we played around a lot, you know, sort of uh, supported lots of artists like the Huda Gurus and Medal as Anything, that kind of vintage, um, for a couple of years, put out an indie album and then uh, decided to call it quits after all of our musical equipment um, got burnt in a van fire. We took that as kind of a sign from God to stop, stop. making that racket. And uh, and then I, while I was doing that, uh, towards the end of the time that I've been playing in a band, I'd fallen into doing a bit of music journalism um, for various sort of magazines like of the time, like Ram and Duke and Rolling Stone. Um, that led to some other bits and pieces he work around the fringes of the music industry, doing a bit of promotion, a bit of publicity work. I managed a little indie band for a while. And through all of that, um, in 1991, got the uh, opportunity to go and do A&R at Sony Music. 
and uh, started doing that. At that time, it was sort of the rise of grunge. And oh, that was that was your first role in, in a record company, was it? Yeah, I had a, a part-time role. Um, Mushroom had a, a company called MDS, which was an independent distribution service in the late 80s. And uh, it was a very small kind of, you know, boutique thing. And um, Scott Murphy ran that and uh, I was their Sydney person. So I did about 20 hours a week for them. So it was always funny. Gadinsky always used to claim he gave me my first job, oh, which he sort of he did. He gave everyone, he gave everyone <laughs> Which he sort job. of did, but it wasn't a full-time job. So um, my first full-time, in fact, the only time in my life I've ever had a full-time job working for anybody else was um, the four years I spent at Sony from 1991 through to 1995. Working in A&R, strictly in A&R, or was it because so I call you having a marketing role? Some so yeah, I did A&R. Yeah. Um, so as I started to say there, you know, um, in 1991 it was Nirvana had just exploded everywhere with Nevermind in Australia. Uh, Ratcat had kind of been the local version of that, and every record company decided they were going to go and get their, you know, hip cool young person, and they couldn't find anybody at Sony, so they employed me. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was sort of brought in to kind of help. I guess they were very big and successful mainstream label and I was brought in to try and bring a left wing to the company. Uh, after a couple of years of doing that, you know, with really not very great results, um, I jumped at the opportunity to take on responsibility as well for international marketing, which was the process of sort of getting Sony's international affiliates to release the Australian artists and support them with marketing and promotion. So I was travelling around the world not knowing what I was doing, uh, traipsing around often after Midnight Oil uh, and learning the ropes. And Melissa Chenery, who's been the general manager of our management company since 1996, so we've worked together a, wow, long time. a long time. Um, Mel at the time worked at Sony as the domestic marketing person. So anybody who's worked at a record company would understand if you think about it as like an assembly line, my roles were the first step, making the records, and the last step, trying to get them released overseas. Mel's role was the middle step, marketing them in Australia. So we So the hard work, you mean? Um, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Well, that, and, and nothing really has changed there over the last 27 yeah. years. But... Um, we, uh, so yeah, we were, we were already friends from before that as well. We actually both knew each other in Townsville days, believe it or not. So back when we were teenagers. Um, so yeah, our partnership kind of started in that period. And then in 1994, um, we started the Murmur label with John O'Donnell. And on John's second day working there, um, this band came across our radar called Innocent Criminals, who would go on to be Silverchair. Um, we signed them. Uh, to murmur together and um, when we were driving back from the first gig that I ever saw them play at I said to John I vividly recall saying it turning to him and going I love this job if I was ever going to leave to manage a band this is the one and that's it and that's how it started yeah and so um, you know for the first sort of nine months of the band's career um, I was still within the record company which is a very odd situation so they were sort of managed by their parents effectively um, and by their, their agent did more work, their lawyer did more work. Everybody, the label did a lot more work than would normally have been done, but everybody stepped up to take on that Just responsibility. On range, yeah. And it was kind of every manager's dream in a way because I was you know, the international marketing person. So I could have a meeting with myself and say, should we send this band to Europe to do three you know, gigs sure. to showcase for the record company and make it all non-recoupable? Yeah, yeah, we should absolutely do that. So um, uh, that worked out well for everybody, and most of all Sony. So... Um, 
yeah, by mid-95, though, things were getting so full on for the band. You know, the, the record was exploding in America and um, it came time to jump ship. So I left, started my own management company and I've done it ever since. Yeah, because Frogstomp took it, it was just exploded, didn't it, right around the world. That was, was incredible. Amazing it time for, for Australia. It kind, of, it kind of lifted the lid on Australian music again, didn't it? Yes, it did. And I mean, that seems to be what happens every five years or so. Australia yeah. has, you know, one of these big international sure. breakthroughs and the world's eyes really turned to Australia off the back of that. You know, it happened again for us with Gautier in 2011, to jump forward in the story. Sure. But, um, you know, each time it happens, it's great. So other artists like, you know, off the back of Silverchair, The Living End, You're Mine, Magic Dirt, a number yeah. of artists probably, and they were great bands in their own right. It wasn't like they wouldn't have got signed otherwise, but they might not have got noticed, particularly in those days where it was not like now where everything's so accessible digitally, everyone can find it immediately. You know, those yeah. days you had to track down a CD. Yeah, because there was a period there. I remember when I was doing a around the same time as uh, Murmur was around, and I remember Warner Brothers signing, or pre-signed Regurgitator because they had to have an Australian act. Mm-hmm. And then Warner Brothers signed the Super Jesus as well as Magic Dirt in the same in the same period. So it was a, a, you know, a glorious time for Australian music. I yeah, think. yeah. Frog Stomps, you know, sort of went top 10 in yeah, America. It, and they were the first, it was the first Australian um, band to have a top 10 album in America since in excess with um, yeah in the, in the late 80s mm. let me just backtrack a little bit because you know it's it's, it's a fantastic history um, and your careers like there's so many accolades I could give you but I'm not um, what were the cultural events or the moments in your life where you knew in your heart of hearts that you were going to be in the music industry what what made you what made you want to be in the music industry? Was it a particular show? Was it a particular artist? Because I'm intrigued by what makes people tick because something in your past has got to set you up for your future. Yeah. I, Particularly I if you're working in the music industry. It's, it's a crazy, it's, you know, I, my standard joke to people is I've spent, you know, 40 years avoiding getting a real job and it's kind of not actually a joke. It's sort of true. I don't know that I ever deliberately decided to do it so much as kept avoiding doing anything else because I was enjoying it so much. You know, like there were, there were times in the late 80s there before I started work at Sony where I had five different part-time jobs, but they were all in music. And um, it just reflected that that's where my passion was. I loved music. I loved being around it. I loved learning about it. You know, working in those record stores between the ages of 15 and 20 was incredibly formative for me, like incredibly formative. Right. Uh, and the guy who owned that store was also, you know, a real kind of father figure to me and I think did a great job of making what might have otherwise seemed impossible possible, um, just that you could sort of be around it somehow. And I figured at some point, you know, I'd have to go and get a real job. And there have been a couple of times over the journey where it did look like I might have to at least go back work for someone else. It's a pretty rollercoaster career, but um, it never ended up happening. So I think, you know, just a desperate love of music and of that experience and you know certain gigs you see certain albums you hear like what give me some examples of gigs that change your life because uh, that's, well, that's important springsteen qe2 stadium 1985 wow. um, my best friend tim and i went on a suburban bus that the local radio station ran all the way from townsville to brisbane 22 hours on like a suburban bus the ones with the metal rails on the back of the seat not like an interstate coach over those North Queensland roads that were like single lane bridges and bumpity, bumpity, bumpity on a bus with no suspension for 22 hours directly to QE2 Stadium, get off the bus, see the show, get back on the bus, drive 22 hours back to Townsville. And it was at that time the biggest show Bruce had ever played in his life was the first stadium he ever did. It was sort of a tester to see if he'd be willing to do them in Europe the following summer. And uh, like 50,000 people. And the biggest gig I'd ever seen would have been, you know, a local gig in Townsville to probably, you know, three or four thousand people so it was just mind-blowing and still kind of 
I, I've got so many metal pictures of that night. Of that show, yeah. Um, and yeah, it started. I already had. I already loved Springsteen, but it sort of you know embedded even deeper the the love of Springsteen. You know, and and I, I um. Darkness on the Edge of Town had been a really big record for me, you know, a whole and growing up as a teenager in North Queensland who kind of wanted to get out and see more of the world and all yeah. of that sort of stuff and reading the music press. There were probably parallels, right? You could understand some of the concepts on that record, right? So this entire album about feeling trapped, right? So in 2011, we started the Cold Chisel, Light the Nitro tour in Townsville. And um, so the band did like three days of production rehearsals and then a couple of gigs. So they're in town for nearly a week. And they were staying right next door to the, the hotel, which was easy for everybody else, but pretty hard for Jimmy because, you know, he was getting, anytime he walked out of his hotel room, he was just besieged by people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he kind of like lived trapped in this hotel room for the whole week, you know. And um, when we got to the, the airport at the end of it, he sort of slumped into the uh, into the, 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 the lounge, you know, the chair in the lounge. And he goes, oh, I don't want to be rude to your old hotel, but I... I just feel like I've been stuck down a hole for a week, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, I said to him, yeah, well, now you know why Darkness on the Edge of Town was my favourite record as a teenager, right? Like, um, you know, a whole album about feeling trapped and wanting to escape. And he looked at me and kind of raised his eyebrow and said, oh, I get it, Darkness on the Edge of Townsville. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Now, you mentioned that the, the guy who you used to work at the record store for, would you consider him a mentor? Oh, big time. Right. Yeah, big time. And did and you have many more mentors after that, do you think? Yeah, I that- think so. My, my dad um, had a stroke when I was nine and effectively sort of, well, he died when I was 16, but he had other right. strokes. And he had, you know, so my dad was not able to kind of do all the things I'm sure he would have liked to have mm. done as a dad. And so when that happens with people, they tend to kind of gravitate towards other people as father figures. So... Um, over the journey, I've definitely done that with a lot of different people, um, you know, in all sorts of ways. So as a manager, you know, Mike McMartin, John Woodruff were really good to me, mm-hmm. really generous with their time. Um, as a writer, you know, Anthony O'Grady, John O'Donnell, Toby Creswell were all... Like, I could just reel off names and names and names. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that's often... Like, the music business has got an awful lot wrong over the journey. And, you know, there's a lot of things that have changed and a lot more that needs to change. Um, but, and we'll talk about that as we go through these yeah. questions. But I, I also think that, um, you know, over the journey, it's probably easy for me to say it as a, you know, a white male. Um, but I've found um, a great many people who've been incredibly generous with their time and really willing to kind of answer a question when you've got it and, mm. you know, point you in the right direction when you're heading in the wrong direction. Sure. So, um, see, so yeah, I've been really lucky with that. But working in a record store was the most seminal of the lot because you got to look customers in the eye and see what made them want to buy a record. Yeah. And, you know, you you when you were trying to figure that out, you could just see the difference that the sticker was making, the difference that the artwork was making, the difference that that TV appearance last weekend made, the difference of what their friends were thinking. And, you know, I could talk about it for hours, the different mm. things that working in a record sure. store. And it was very much like High Fidelity and Jack Black. Of course, and all but that you stuff. could put yourself in, in, in the customer's shoes too, because, you, you know, ultimately everyone's a fan. That's right? exactly right. right. And the other thing that was really unusual about these stores one was a new store and one was a secondhand store. Um, all of the other record stores in town sold the top 40. So they sold mm. the records that were, you know, on countdown on the weekend and being played on one of the two radio stations in town. Um, but the store that I worked at was the one that sold all the stuff from around the sides. They sold the top 40 as well, but they, they were kind of known as the place you went to to find that kind of slightly unusual record. Well, imports, I imagine, in those times. There were imports, but yeah. it was they would have blues and country and jazz and new age and punk and lots of indie stuff, lots of alternative stuff, lots of imports. And 
it was a phenomenal musical education as well because in a pre-streaming era now it's great you know you can if, if someone tells you oh you should go and listen to you know sister loretta tharp you can just call it up you know um but in those days like well how are you ever going to find that how are you ever going to even find darkness on the edge of town you know answer someone bought it into the store and sold it as a second-hand cassette and i went oh i've, I've read about that i've heard the river which was the other side of the time but i'll get this one and boom you know so it was incredible from a musical education standpoint as well. And Gary and the other people that worked at that store, Richard and Russell and other people there, were just incredibly knowledgeable music fans who wanted to explain things to you. So you'd go, oh, I love the Rolling Stones. they go, yeah, they're great. But if you listen to Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf, right? right. Where they so, came from, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was um, influential in a way that I would just had no idea of at the time. And my entire identity was really tied up in that way that, you know, when you're 15, 16, 17, you're mm. trying to figure out, okay, who am I? You know, you're the guy at school who dot, dot, dot. Yes. yes. You know, he's the music guy. You're right. You're the guy. Yeah, you're the one that uh, had all the cool records, I imagine, the cool T-shirts. And- well, they, I don't know that anyone in Townsville thought they were cool. They were <laughs> you're weird. Right. He was the weird one. He wore some band called Sunny Boys. No idea who they were. I remember wearing a Sunny Boys T-shirt. You know, they'd have dress-up, muck-up days yeah, at of course, school. Of you could wear, you know, you pay two, two dollars, probably those days, 20 cents. Um, and I remember wearing a Sunny Boy shirt to school, and I was just going, what's that? What's a Sunny Boy? Yeah, yeah, who are they? Yeah. yeah. It segues nicely, speaking of mentors, you feature prominently in the um, Michael Godinsky movie. Was Michael a mentor to you? Because uh, you had a lot of great things to say in, in, that, um, in that documentary about him, and it, and it felt like from the outside looking in um, that it seemed that, you know, you, you had a relationship with him. Oh, I had a, yeah, I had a great relationship with Michael. I, I you know... He was not a perfect person. He wouldn't have claimed to be one. Of course. Um, but in the last 10 years of his life or so, maybe the last 12 or 13 years of his life, we became, I think, very close. Mm. Although Shirley Manson's quotes in that movie about how he made everybody think that, you know, that it, they were his it, special one. You know, that, that was his art, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And he was brilliant at it. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant at it. But I love Michael. Um, but the the we were, our, our relationship sort of went through three phases, I suppose. The first phase, which would have been... 70s 80s he didn't know who i was mm. but i knew who he was the first record i ever bought was ego is not a dirty word of course i was a member of the skyhooks fan club you know i knew michael Gadinsky's name um and you know how could you not want to know who michael Gadinsky was in the 1980s with all those records yeah. right and then i interviewed him and uh, in the in the 80s for playboy weirdly um for which he'd completely forgotten about and found wow. about five or six years ago and went did you actually do this? I have no recollection. Wow. I think yeah, it was one of the great days of my life. I can tell you the room we were in. Um, and then, as I say, I had that part-time job working for MDS. So I was working for someone who was working for someone who was working for Michael. Right. Um, but I got to go to his house once. So you, that it was that kind of distant yes. fanboy. Yes. We, we all start that way with He's Michael. the big of course. kahuna and I'm kind of way out here, seven orbits from the sun, yeah. you know. So that was my first relationship. Then... My second relationship, which was probably sort of 90s and into the 2000s, was as a competitor. Um, well, yeah, you went head-to-head on Silverchair, right? So, yeah, Mushroom yeah. – Silverchair were going to sign to Mushroom until we kind of – for two days um, – yeah, right. until we kind of made a play for it. And, yeah. and, you know, it was a pretty big miss for, for Mushroom yeah. in terms of like a sliding doors moment for that company. And more broadly, you know, Michael came to represent, perhaps unfairly, perhaps fairly, the old school. You know, their agencies were the were the ones that had kind of done things a certain way in the eighties, and 
our generation as we came through with alternative music, we were going to do things differently. I'm not quite sure it panned out like that, but that was we thought we were going we, to do it all we, differently. We tried our hardest, didn't we? We did, and there were certainly <laughs> some changes that, that yeah. were made as a result of it all um, to to the benefit of artists. Mm. Um, and so through that period, the '90s into the 2000s, um, Michael was the, the the old guy, and we were going to take him down. The old guard, sorry, we're going to take down the old guard. We're going to charge the. But there was a few of them. It wasn't just Michael. Oh, it wasn't was, just Michael, was, but he was the biggest of them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and then when Mr. Higgins came along in sort of 2004, um, someone who worked for Michael, Michael Harrison, was um, her booking agent. And so that sort of brought us back into the orbit a little bit. Mm. And then I started working with Cold Chisel uh, in 2009, and obviously Jimmy and Michael were brothers. And Was it, that that long ago you, you started working with Chisel? Yeah, 2009. Wow. Um, that's a good Michael story, so I'll just tell it. Yeah, tell it, um, please. So John O'Donnell and I are taking on managing Cold Chisel. And, yeah. You know, Michael and, and Jimmy have been, you know. And this is the last wave period, was it? No, this is no last wave was 98. This is for the light, light the night. Oh, this is way after. Way after, gotcha. yeah, 2009. Okay. That's right. Last week was yeah. Yeah. So he, um, John and I are taking on the management of Cold Chisel, and we think well, we better call the various stakeholders. Thank everyone probably knows it's happening anyway, but just so they hear it from us before of you know it kind of goes public. Michael, especially because of his association or relationship with Jimmy. Exactly. So you know, yeah. just we sort of had to kiss the ring, right? So, um, <laughs> so we call Michael at like nine o'clock in the morning, and we obviously wake him up. You know, and can you do so, his? Can you do his voice? Can you? I'll, I'll give it a go. Give it a go. Yeah. Um, yeah, ring, ring. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and, uh, and John and I sort of go, uh, Michael, it's John and John. Um, we're just, uh, he goes, oh, yeah. <clears throat> oh, look, uh, mm, uh, I know why you're calling. And I just want to say, we've got a lot of vested interests in that band. And we're very keen to have more vested interests. I want your cheering. In other words, more, more vested, vested interests. Just replay that line really slowly and think about how it combines <laughs> charm, yeah. intimidation, yeah. business opportunity, flattery. Yeah. You know, like it's everything. And he did it within 15 seconds of being in a coma after probably being only asleep for four hours after getting up to God knows what the night I'd, before, I'd right? Say, I'd say an hour. Not yeah. Sure. yeah. So, you know, he was, yeah, he was cut from completely different cloth um, from us. But... So from that point forward, and obviously I then started working with Jimmy as a solo artist after that. We're jumping all over the spot, I guess. But um, because of his long association with Jimmy and because of the sort of the positive stuff we were able to do, um, I think he became quite intrigued with like how that relationship was sort of working. And then also Birds of Tokyo, who we took on in about 2011 as well. Um, they were already signed to Mushroom Publishing when we took them on. So yeah. their deal came up around that period. And um, I went down for what was my first sort of direct negotiation with Michael, other than having negotiated Missy's agency commissions with him. Yeah. Um, and uh, he came in sort of hunting for bear. He was all ready for like, okay, let me just, you know, yeah. I'm not going to pay that money. And, you know, like it, money, money, right? And I just was like, and the band had a great relationship with Mushroom Publishing. It was a very fair deal. It was essentially just an admin deal. And um, and they've still got it. And, and I, said to, uh, I said to Michael, you know, we're all pretty happy with the deal. We don't want to change anything. We've just got one thing that we want you to guarantee and we'll resign. He goes, what? You're not going to ask me for more money? I'm like, no, we're getting the money. The deal's good. I said, mm. but we want you to do something that will grow the cake for all of us. He goes, mm. what's that? I said, they want to play the AFL grand final. Ah. They're big footy fans. That's how it happened. They've got a song. Yeah. We'll resign the publishing if you get them on the AFL grand oh. final. 
It would have been a breeze. And of course, he loved being able to, yeah. like, he loved nothing better than to go forth and prove that he oh, was yeah. the man, you know. Challenge. Yeah, exactly. So he went forward and he proved that he was the man yeah. or the woman, um, you know, as it could be in this, <laughs> yeah, in this day right, and age. So right. you know, someone else can prove that they're the woman. Michael would prove that he was the man. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so that was, I think he liked, he often used to bring that up as like that it wasn't how most people would have approached it, but he really thought it was a smarter way to do it because, every, you know, we made a lot band made a lot more money and built their brand a lot more through that opportunity than they would have done by you know getting an extra two points on their publishing absolutely um let's finish off on michael because he'd love us talking about him by the way he'd love nothing more than look at these two idiots having a you know having talk more about me i like the people they talked about me the rest of it yeah the rest of of it's crap let's finish off on michael what's your lasting memory of him is it is there something funny that you can recall or you know because you, you were one of the last people to actually see Michael. Yeah, he to speak to him as well. Yeah, because um, yeah, he, he came to Sydney on the Thursday night for um, the midnight, the first sort of warm-up show of Midnight Oil's Macarada Project tour um, and uh, then had a fall in the hotel after that. We were supposed to have lunch the next day and I got a phone call from Vanessa the next day saying, oh, Michael's on a plane on his way back. He's really hurt his back. Um, he's in a bad way. And then he called me over the weekend and he, he definitely didn't sound good. Um, and then he called me again on the Monday afternoon mm. and he really didn't sound good. Like right. really didn't sound good. In a lot of pain, obviously. Yeah. And just like obviously on painkillers for his back. And I like, you know, in a in another world, I, lo- I would love a world where, you know, he didn't tell everyone just to take him home because he just wanted to get home and be in his own house. It's an understandable impulse. But, but you know, it was, and it wasn't easy to say no to, for anyone to say no to Michael Wydinski. But I wish a doctor or somebody had said, no, you've got to go into hospital and you've got Stay to get proper here. treatment yeah. you know, and proper pain management and stuff. Um, he was in a lot of pain and he'd had bad back stuff before um, for different reasons. He'd been in bed for ages on another thing. So mm. um, anyway, that, that's, I, that's a bit of a sad memory. I'll have a happier memory though. Just, just, just for go a happier on. story. Please just do, for a good life story. This. Um, so when, um, when Ed Sheeran was coming out, Ed had always said that he was a big Missy Higgins fan. And, you know, we were really keen for Missy to do that stadium tour, the big one that had a million people oh, and stuff. Yes. Like, this would be a great way to kind of remind people of, of her. And she had this song, Futon Couch. We're like, it's the first song in a while that we've actually got a shot, you know, at sort of having be a pop hit and stuff. And, um, and Ed's already a fan, you know, but of course there were a lot of people gunning for that tour. And Mark was like, no, no, I'll make sure that, you know, we'll do this with him. You know, and Michael being Mark, he'd call you every two days to tell you he was going to do you a favour. And um, so he um, he gets to London and this is, he's going out for dinner with Ed. I'm going, I'm going to do it tomorrow night. I'm going to, I'm going to tell him. him. I'm going to tell him. Don't worry. I'm going to tell him. And uh, so he, t- he goes out to dinner with Ed and I don't hear anything. I get this phone call at like, I don't know, about four o'clock, five o'clock Sydney time. So it must've been like, you know, no, hang on, three, three o'clock Sydney time. So about four or 5 a.m. London time. In London, I was going to say. Right. Yeah. And, and he's whispering. Yeah. John, it's Michael. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you're right, Michael. Where are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Oh, I'm in the bathroom. At its place, right? No, no. No. At, a, at the hotel. Sue's asleep in the room next to me. And I don't want <laughs> don't to wake her up. You always do this to me all the time. I don't want to wake her up. I'm like, oh, great. I go, how'd it go? And then there's this really long silence, like he's fallen asleep. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, Michael, you're still there? <laughs> he's gone. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Like he literally, I reckon you drift off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he goes, look, I've got to be honest. I'm a bit fucking pissed, but you've heard me worse. 
That's such a Michael thing to say. <laughs> you know, and he, like, and, he, and, he, and of course, he'd been out with Ed and Missy had the tour. You know, because that's how Michael that's rolled. That's how he rolled. You know, and oh. the thing about it is, you know, that when I was a kid in Townsville and I'm listening to Ego's Not a Dirty Word and I'm reading Ram magazine and there's this, you know, golden castle on the hill and he's the Wizard of Oz, right, at yeah. the end of the yellow brick road. Um, I always kind of pictured that showbiz would be full of people like that, mm. right? Mm, very much so. It, and, and it was one of the many things that really drew me to it, consciously or subconsciously, sure. these larger-than-life characters, right? And the truth of it is most of us are pretty boring. Mm. Compared, he, to, compared to some of these characters he, we're talking about. Yeah. But he, he absolutely lived up to the myth. Well, you that, that larger-than-life uh, moniker, he, he definitely lived up to it, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, and you know, so so we over the last, you know, the, through working together in some ways on Missy, very much with Jimmy, mm. um, and with Birds, um, and then the last three years he did the Midnight Oil tour in 2017, which was a big thing for him because they'd always been, you know, never oh, the course. twain shall meet. Again, Michael Harrison was very instrumental in that with, with Sahara, and um, you know that really I think bonded things as well. And then through the COVID period, we would talk every single day because he was just like a big bird. ideas. He was a bird trapped in a house. He had all oh, this energy, nowhere to spend. Oh God, you know, and would. so all those things that he that he pulled together, like music from the home front, even doing the Macarada project tour. You know, we were one of the few people that were sort of crazy enough to try and put on tours during COVID. And you know, it, it worked. worked. Yeah, that's yeah. great, John. Um, you look at your career and you've done so much, you know, working at labels, managing all these fantastic bands. Um, is there anything left to prove to yourself in your career? Is there, is there more to the, the John Watson story or are you content with where, you, where, where you're at right now? Um, I've never seen it as a John Watson story. You know what I mean? So I, I think that the... Well, coming uh, from, from me from the outside looking in, I mean, the John Watson story continues. Yeah, but I've, I've never, I've never right. saw it. It's, so when we had you know, the 11 label, we still have the 11 label, you know, I was never really interested in stuff that built identity for the label. You know, like there are other labels that were brilliant at building identity for themselves. And it was quite a useful thing because... For example, like a Modular? For well, example. Modular were great yeah. at it. Yeah. Pav was a genius yeah. at it. You know, but in America, well, you know, down through the years, Atlantic used to stand for soul and, you know, creation in the UK stood for sort of that, you know, edgy Britpop thing yeah. and factory yeah. for Happy yes. Mondays and all that, right? So different labels can have identities. Of course. The 11 label never had that because it was never about us. It was about the, the artist, artist. Yeah. right? And so my challenges are all about that. You know, how, like, so, you know, for Mel and I, um, you know, having grown up as big Midnight Oil fans and getting the opportunity to start working with them in 2016 and sort of being around for that kind of Indian summer period that they've had, um, landing that final album and tour was a really big deal for us. It wasn't about our legacy in any way. It was 100% about their legacy. Mm. But in seeing their legacy, I think ending up in a really great space and in them ending up in a great space with each other and with their fans and, you know, it feels like a good way to to um, land that. That's where the accomplishment comes from. Mm. So um, you know, to the extent that there are still things to achieve, there are things to achieve for our artists. So if you take Missy as a case in point... Who's still going very strong, isn't she? Yeah, well, we've, and we've amazing. got a big year for, for, planned for her... Um, next year, she's got some great stuff on the boil. Um, we've always talked that, you know, Missy's career done right is a Paul Kelly type career, which is not to say that it's necessarily as big as Paul. Um, 
you know, and I'm not going to get into sort of, you know, who's the better songwriter and stuff. Sure, Paul's sure. done extraordinary work. I don't mean it like that. Mm. What I mean is that over 40 years or more, Paul Kelly has had this dialogue with an audience and a country that has enriched a lot of lives and has sustained him as a creative force, Absolutely. right? He's had an amazing career in terms of creating a body of work that will live. And you know, reinvention. And reinvention. You know, he's like, and so I think that that's, that's the that's the benchmark, right? Yep. So um, for Missy, she's halfway. She's twenty years, you know. So our our goal for Missy is well, you know, if she chooses to stop doing it, then fine. That's sure. which she has done before. Um, you know, then fine. But for so long as she's actively engaged as she is, then it's about trying to keep growing towards that goal. You know, now at the forty year mark. You know, I doubt I'd still be involved. I'd be seventy six. You might but, be retired by then. Yeah, time. but but you know, the being part of her journey mm. is a really rewarding thing. So, to the extent that there's unfinished business, it's the unfinished business of the growth of the artists and the careers that we've, mm. you know, that we feel proud of our contribution to. Yeah. Now that that, that all said, I mean, Eleven did have a, a reputation. For, it was a go to label for a while, wasn't mm-hmm. it? I, I I thought that. You know, like you, I was one band I was trying to sign at you. And they signed because it was, you know, you're on, you know, they wanted to be on the eleven. That was a little birdie. Mm-hmm. So it did, it did amount, it counted for something, didn't it? Like, yeah, I think what it counted for though was the idea that you could be exactly who you wanted to be. Mm. It was a label that allowed the artist to be the artist. Yeah, and you know, and that's because effectively, we never started a record company to be a record company. We started as a device for our management company. You know, it arose out of a conversation. Was, was actually people think it was started for Silverchair, mm. but it wasn't. It was actually started for Paul Mac. We were shopping the Paul Mac first record around, and um, after we got him out of the four exclusive recording deals that he was signed to simultaneously prior to us starting, as, as a lot of EDM slash dance artists do, I know, right? It was hilarious. <laughs> he was so funny. Like when he first came in, he told us, "Yeah, I'm signed to two deals." And we're like, oh, God, okay, so we'll untangle it. And just as we got through one of them. Oh, there's two more. I I found this other paper. I'm not sure what it means. It's like, you mean this paper that's headed exclusive recording agreement, Bob? Uh, He just sort of laughed and walked out, left us to it. Anyway, so once we untangled all that, we're shopping his record around. And um, he... uh, we actually it was uh, Tim Prescott at BMG, and you know I was saying we wanted to do an Australia-only deal because we wanted to have the option to get someone directly invested in it internationally. And um, Tim said, "I can't do that. If you're a label, I could do it." I said, "Stop right there. We're a label, <laughs> you know." And so our, our the whole purpose of Eleven was as shown with Missy. So she was on Eleven here, signed to Warner's sure. overseas. All of the costs and the help in developing her over those early years were borne by Warner's and the money was quarantined overseas. So she was making money from record one in Australia. It was great for her. Um, the ideal scenario, really, for yeah. any, any Australian. And she owns actor. her own masters here, yeah. and yeah. and. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a it was a really good device as a management company mm. and, and continues to be. Yeah, you know, for the for the artists like Gautier is still on eleven. Is, is Gautier still in existence? Oh yeah, as yeah, an he's, artist? He's, he's got a record. He's just still endlessly polishing it. Oh, I'm sure he is. It's yeah, been a it's long time, hasn't it? It's and it's incredible. I know it that is. I know that's a tease. I mean, I don't, I've got no idea when or if it'll ever come out, but it should because it's really great. Yeah, I can't wait to hear something. It's been a long time, hasn't it? How yeah. long has it been? Seriously. Well, the fu- so you know something that I used to know was 2011. Wow. And by okay. that, and so he won the Grammy in 2000 and start of 2013 because the record exploded in America in 2012. Right. So it's 10 years. So, yeah. So, but by 2014, people were starting to say to me, you know, so when's the new record, you know? And my glib reply to get them off my back was, he's making the album of the year for 2020, right? And people would sort of laugh. And I was like, well, it took him six years between the the two previous records, Mm. right? Close enough, five years. And um, 
anyway, I didn't know that I was under shooting as it turned out. But um, yeah, we're still waiting. Still but he's, waiting. he's extraordinary. And I mean, he's got a, you know, it's very interesting when, you know, someone can do anything at all that they want to do, right? Anything is possible for him. Because he's still, you know, somebody yeah. I used to know is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yeah. And, and um, so he can do anything he wants to do. What, what do you choose to do when you can do anything, right? Some people move to the Bahamas. Some people date supermodels. Some people go racing fast cars, you know. Um, he has done some of the, the most extraordinary kind of excavation of electronic music and the history of, of um, yeah, sort of 1940s and 50s equipment and musical equipment wow. and sound. Well, he's a studio boffin, isn't he? He totally is. He's always a sound has, boffin. And that's, and that's the thing. Like, you know, he's always chasing something. So but he's an amazingly gifted guy. Yeah. Now, let's move into hypotheticals. This is mm-hmm. my favourite section of the uh, interview. And I've, I've, everyone I've interviewed so far gets different hypotheticals. These ones, I don't know why I thought they'd apply to you, but let's give it a go, okay? Sure. Let's start with your favourite band of all time. Now, they could be defunct or they could be going now, but they... You know, they, they come to you and they say, John, we want you to launch our next record. Who's that band? And what do you do in 2023, 2024? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say you're going to say Bruce Springsteen, but I'm not. No, because Bruce is... Okay, well, the obvious one to say would be uh, if there's any manager who hasn't watched Get Back and gone, God, I wish I could have been there to stop that, mm. right? Because... You're talking about the Yoko Ono being in the studio, the whole... No, not even that so much. Like, well, look, I could talk about that for an hour. I won't because people have better things to do with their lives. But I'm a Beatles tragic. I love the Beatles. The break of the Beatles was completely avoidable. If anyone would like to have a conversation about that, give me a shout. I'll talk about it for an hour. Absolutely. But I won't do that because it's that's that's really more about how you stop the band breaking out rather breaking up rather than how do you launch a record for them. Um, You've asked me to aim high, so I'll pick you two. Okay. Um, They're not my... Like I really like you two a lot, but they're not my favourite band of all time. But they are a band where I have a strong view that, um, yeah, some of the choices they've made, which, by the way, they're richer than God. They're one of the biggest acts in the history of music. They've done okay without my help. Um, but nonetheless, I think that since Paul McGinnis stopped managing them, a lot of the choices they've made are really unfortunate to their legacy. For right? example, the Apple fiasco. Just just time and again. The Apple, there was a Bank of America fiasco that everyone forgets before the Apple oh, fiasco. Oh, what was that one? doesn't even matter now, but just anyway, you can Google it. It was right? an advert, right? It was an advert and a free download right. from oh, the Super gotcha, Bowl, and gotcha, it was just gotcha, a bullshit gotcha. thing that didn't yeah. work. And then it was the Apple thing, which didn't work. Didn't work at all. And then they had to do the Live Nation deal. Well, they didn't have to. They chose to do this big Live Nation deal that meant they were sort of traveling around the world doing the Joshua Tree, which was a massively successful tour financially. But when you went to see it, as I did, actually saw it twice, um, it was pretty, like it was good production-wise, but the band were dialing in. The band were just paying off their advance, I think, in my view. I could be completely wrong, just my take as a fan. But it was the only time I've ever seen you two and not being completely and utterly blown away, transported by them to another place, elevated, like almost in a sort of go-to-church kind of way. You two used to have Absolutely. that ability, right? Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know what they're going to be doing in Vegas shortly, but just the whole That's smell of, too, isn't it? The whole the smell of doing Vegas without Larry. I'm just like, really? Oh, Larry's not involved anymore. No. Well, no, Larry's Larry's sort of needs back surgery or something is the, is the line. But I don't know. I don't know. Larry's always seems to have been the one with the biggest bullshit detector. So yeah. as, as far as I can tell. So what I would have done yeah, with you, you two, yeah, you um, I think that you two have an amazing acoustic. If there's a Van Morris album called Celtic Heartbeat mm-hmm. where he sort of in, in mid to late life um, went back and discovered Irish instruments. And used a lot of those Irish instruments to kind of reimagine 
um, it wasn't doing covers of his old songs. It was all new songs. And I think that, you know, um, The Edge is, because he's been such a technologically innovative guitarist, um, you know, leaning hard on technology, I think people underestimate just what an incredible um, musician he is, like his choice of melodies and notes and counter melodies. And I think that, you know, leaning into that in um, his... uh, you know, leaning into acoustic instruments, going away from... He's reinvented the sound of the guitar twice in a career. You know, that's a pretty incredible thing to have done. Um, but I think he could reinvent again by the use of some of those beautiful Celtic instruments. They have really distinct and highly emotional sounds that would really fit the highly emotional music of U2. And again, Bono, um, as somebody who I think in... While some of the songs on the later records might not quite have the same oomph as some of the earlier songs... You mean lyrically, you mean? Just, you know, it's the magic, right? Yeah, that yeah. that that thing. Like, yeah. you know, if you write... Not everyone can ever write pride in the name of love, you no, know? Like, so... No. But Bono as a singer, I think, discovered himself better um, in later life. He's got much more nuance in his vocal now. He doesn't just have to sort of, you know, bellow everything. Anthemic, yeah. Anthemic everything. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. have to state him I, I, lo- I love when he's, restrained, when he's restrained. So when he yeah. sings, yeah. you know, a song like um, Stuck in a Moment That You Can't Get Out Of, right? Yeah. Um, so th- there's... And, and that beautiful one... Um, the one for his father, um, you're the reason that I have the music in me. Or something. That's not the title, but anyway, right, I don't know, know what I mean. The idea of you two doing a um, a more acoustic record of new songs with you know traditional Irish instruments, playing them in beautiful theatres, mm. you know, and finding a way to make the money that they want to make in other ways around that music, but continuing the process of reinvention. You know, I I loved the ambition of U2, the unabashed ambition of U2 when they released Beautiful Day and played it on the Grammys or whatever and Bono said, we're here to audition for the job, dot, 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 of the biggest band in the world. Mm. You know, a great moment, wasn't great it? Great moment. Yeah. And and so I think it's sad that they kind of went and started doing anniversary tours that were very deliberately backward-looking when they'd always been such a forward-looking band. It would have been lovely for them to find a way to make age-appropriate music that's forward-looking yeah. and not give up. And I really feel like I'm a huge Paul McGuinness fan. I think Paul McGuinness, you know, worked amazing. The chemistry between him and that band was so special. Yeah. And I, wonder I feel... What, I wonder what he'd be thinking right now. Yeah, probably well, same, I'm... Probably I'm, the same thing. You're... Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, it, it's impossible to know. Like, did you ever meet him? Yeah, yeah. I actually um, did a Q&A thing for him um, at one of those Arias panels one year. So I was oh, the interviewer. I recall that, actually. And uh, yeah, it was great. We had some that. really good chats around yeah, it. I but. Do. Uh, he was a lovely fella, but um, you know, and a notorious hard ass as well. He was super Ooh, nice, yeah. but I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side Ooh, of him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So anyway, you asked me, and as, as I say, I recognise that that is incredibly presumptuous. You two are doing just great without me. Uh, I remain a fan of the band. I love the idea, though. It's a fantastic idea, tracing the Celtic roots and I going just think right I, back. You know, I can see the film that comes out of it. I can see it being sort of like their, I don't know, what Paul Simon's Graceland was to him. You know, that yeah. kind of record, which yeah. just completely blows. You two, I mean, the the, the ambition, no, the balls the of balls. that band yeah, absolutely. Um, are probably a politically incorrect term to use, but a, the balls of that band to blow up themselves like they did before Actung Baby. I mean, that's an incredible thing to do. And then to sort of do it again later in their lives, you know, that... I would have loved him to just do that one more time. It's an incredible thing to watch. That Beatles thing of going, yeah, everyone thinks we're sort of the Phil Clean Cut boys in no, suits. No, well, no. wait till you check out Revolver. Oh, yeah. I remember that. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. so... And a fantastic tour too to go with it. Yes. Yeah, it was an amazing tour. Yeah. So anyway, they're, 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 uh, they would be a very interesting project to be... But, but you know, 
the other thing about it is that all you want for your favorite artist is that they feel fulfilled and happy. And if, 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 you know, they're getting their fulfillment from, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars, who am I to tell them to go and play a theater and play an acoustic record? It's like, yeah, well, who's going to pay for our kids' braces then? You know, it's a great idea though. It's a fantastic um, idea. I think that, I think it would freshen up the brand. Yeah. Now speaking of projects, so we're talking, we've talked about an artist. So let's talk about a, a festival. Let's talk about you know, a special event. For example, I've given you Vivid in mm-hmm. Sydney, and you're in charge of, you're being given the keys to the kingdom to program Vivid in 2024. What does that look like if John Watson is the head programmer? Um, it looks terrible because I'm, oh, wrong, right. I'm the wrong person to, ha- to well, program give it Vivid. Well, give it a go. No, no, what it's no, about. No, because I, I no? think, so I think that one of the things... Okay, that, so who would you get to program? Yeah, well, I would, I'd absolutely have right. to go and find a the brilliant right 25 to 30-year-old to do you it. Think, you think it's all about that? I really do. Right. I really, really do. I think there is a point in your life where you are truly in touch with the zeitgeist. You know, yeah, we were there in the nineties. We were, we were, definitely. right, absolutely. And I and I can remember standing at the Annandale Hotel while trying to sign UMI. And anyone who was ever at the Annandale Hotel in those days would remember that there used to be pool tables stacked up the back of the oh, venue. Yeah. I do remember that. And so myself and a couple of other people, you might have even been there. A couple I of other people our age um, were down in the middle. We were twenty-five, whatever, mm. and. Up the back of the venue, sitting on the pool table, were these unbelievably ancient 40-year-olds. 40, 40 <laughs> now you look at it and go, young fellas. But in those days, these guys in their 40s who were sort of the heads of A&R, wearing bomber jackets with comb-overs. Carpenter. And, uh, well, I'm not going to name it. <laughs> go name, on. Pete's, name Pete's a good friend of mine. He was, you know, he was, but, like, I don't think Pete was there that I'll, night. But there was, but, you we know, do love Pete, though. All the, all, the lab, all the labels had, you know, somebody yes. who was in their 40s who, you know, was brilliant at doing Southern Suns or, you know, yeah. whoever, right? Yeah. Um, 1927. Or not all those kinds that. of big radio bands that, yeah. you know, that served their purpose. Allowed us to sign the artsy right. stuff on Triple J that sold about a quarter as many copies. Um, <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, the um, those guys were at the back of the venue. I remember looking at them thinking, I really never want to turn into one of those people, right? Mm. So one of the things I've done really quite deliberately over my career is tried to age authentically, mm. to be authentic. And to age authentically with my roster. You know, I couldn't tell you how to break a 20-year-old hip-hop act or what a good 20-year-old hip-hop act was. Mm. You know, there are people... It's, I'm not saying it can't be done. There are people in their 50s. Seymour Stein was able to hear a hit until he oh, was 70, right? Seymour, yeah. So there's people that do it. I'm not one of those people. So I was... There was a period of time where I think I had a really good sense for what kind of new thing work. would resonate. And then with time, you gradually move out of that zeitgeist and you become a middle-aged person. <laughs> And that makes me really, really good at managing cultures on Midnight Oil because I understand their audience. I understand their ba- their brand, you know, in some cases perhaps even better than they do because I've been the fan. A massive fan, yeah. Um, so it, it's – I can still have – make a positive difference sure. in careers. I can still help connect artists to audience in a way that benefits everybody. Um, and I can do it without having to pretend to be something that I'm not. Some you know. guru. Yeah, or you know, and yeah, so I can do it without wearing a bomber jacket, having a comb over, and sitting up the back of the venue. Okay, so let's let's. Okay, that was a cop out, John, but none. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the truth is, I couldn't answer the question. No, it's, I don't no, know. it's fair enough. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to berate you for it. Um, the one Australian act, Australian act, you wish you could have signed, or had the opportunity to sign. Well, the one that hurt most yes. when I missed out was Jet, uh, and I've talked about it previously, just because of the timing, as much as anything else. Um, you know, so we had kind of gambled everything on Silverchair's diorama. We had started, you know, the 11 And we're talking management or both label and management? Uh, management. Right. Um, so in 2002, 
Um, we had Silverchair's diorama, which had taken a long time to make. It was a difficult record to make very publicly. There's a lot of conflict, you know, um, very expensive and ambitious. It was the greatest view was the first single. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, and our son was, our first child was born um, uh, at the end of March and the record came out a, a week later. Daniel got very sick uh, with this reactive arth- arthritic condition and was unable to tour, unable to do any promotion. The record was sinking down the charts with an anchor. Right at that time, um, the guy that was managing uh, Jet, who was sort of a friend of the band and, a, and, a, and an enthusiast. Was that Boxy? Uh, no, it was a guy called Dave Powell. Oh, um, major. So, major. Yeah. Yes, so Dave, Dave was. was sort of looking for someone who had a bit more experience to be the co-manager. And um, it came down to sort of, I think it came down to myself or the Winnem and Goldstein guys. And he went with Winnem and Goldstein because they were the hip young guys that had just had the vines. Yep. And, yep. you know, and I was I was sort of the old guy that managed Silverchair at that point, you know, washed up at the age of 36. <laughs> and um, But it was a real moment of, oh, I'm going to have to go and go back and work at a record company because I've got a newborn at home. You know, I'd love to stay managing Silverchair, but there's literally no money in it. The band's going to be unrecouped from now till the end of time because of what this record's cost. They're unable to tour because poor Daniel's, through no fault of his own, right. is really sick. Yeah. Um, you know, he's in an awful way. It was terrible. Um, like, you know, I've, I've got a wife who's given up work. I've got a baby at home. I've got to find a way to pay the bills. It's right? almost like your Gadinsky silver chest like slotting yeah. door moment. It was a big yeah. time that. Yeah. And and so I can vividly recall like getting the news on a Friday night from, you know, Brett Oaten was their lawyer and mm-hmm. getting the news from him and walking out, you know, with the baby in a pram and going to get a takeaway with Belinda and just, and her mum was staying with us at the time. So I remember her, she was there too. And just going, I, I think I'm, I think this is going to finish me. Like I've missed out. You You're know? gutted. And yeah, because the thing that happens, you know, and you would know this from oh, different yeah. periods in your career, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. When you're out in the band, is oh my god! It's but like just more generally, put too. a knife in your heart, and you. When you're on top, it's amazing how much everyone likes you and how much your phone rings, right? Oh, when you've yeah. got something that everybody wants, you got a lot of friends. Absolutely. And when there's nothing going on, it's amazing how everyone loses your phone number, right? So I had six of the quietest months of my life mm. as that record you know, um, sank down the charts because now Diorama is considered a classic, and it is a classic. Absolutely classic. But um, but for the first six months, it wasn't. For the first, you know... It, it took a while for it to warm up, didn't it? So yeah. it was the Arias that turned everything mm. around, mm. like six months later. Like the week before the Arias, that record was 70 with an anchor. You know, right. it had sold 3,000 copies between the first week. Well, it shipped seventy. It shipped 69,000 and sold 3,000 more in six months. In six months. So yeah. just the records all went to retail and just sat there, right? And then the Arias brought a whole new audience to the band. And everything reignited. Daniel got better. They did that incredible performance. Mirror they did soup. The was it the mirror soup? No, that was that was another time. That was another but time, that, yeah. that was the. But anyway, they they. So the point was that the jet moment was definitely a, a an insight into our mortality. We had already signed Missy at that point, but she was off backpacking around Europe. Or it might have been even that year that we signed her. She yeah. didn't put her stuff out for another couple of years. I remember Sumo signed would say to me, "Hey, if you miss out on the band, there's plenty of fish in the sea," which is a which is a cliche, but it's true, right? Yeah, but it's truer in America than it is here, right? I think that a lot of the things, a lot Be, of the, us being a smaller market, you mean? Yeah, there's yeah. you know, in any given decade, there might be half a dozen Australian artists that really, really make global sense, right? And Jet were clearly one of those, yeah. right? And for for all of my career up till the end of the Gautier project, the thing that motivated me was trying to get success internationally. I loved the idea because from my days working at Sony as an international marketing person, for me, it was 
all about, particularly America, breaking America. If you can make it there, you make it anywhere. We had right? that taste with Silverchair, right? Yeah. And, and to an extent, Wolfmother? Yeah, Wolfmother had yeah. a gold record in America. I mean, Wolfmother... Yeah. Wolfmother, Wolfmother. I oh, know, um, you've got stories there, the, haven't you? The, the, There's the, stories there. There are stories there. But the, <laughs> the, the, the most frustrating part about Wolfmother was that, you know, they they really did the work in America in a way that, truthfully, no other artists have ever been fortunate enough to work with has been willing or able to do. Despite all of their the, the difficulties within the band, they played and played I was going to say, get in the van and just get, go they around. They just went around. out and they did, mm. they did the TV shows. And there was a moment, because, you know, it's, it's not... Well, it's hard, but it's it's not uncommon for international artists to be big on the in the blue states of America, up the East Coast and the West Coast, which are always on to the new thing. But but you know, more than half the people live in the middle, in the red states. Yes, of course. And um, it's much harder to break those parts of the country. And when you break those parts of the country, they tend to stick with you forever. And um, there was a moment at the end of the Wolfmother cycle where I really knew they'd broken America because the thing with Wolfmother is they played two different ways on the coasts. They were this ironic kind of postmodern retro hipster band. Of course. Right. Whereas in the middle of America, they sound like Sabbath and Zeppelin. They still love Sabbath and Zeppelin. So they were just taken at face value. So they worked both Best ways, both ways, right? Yeah. And um, they were just a good rock and roll band. And so um, there was a moment, though, where they did the Bonnaroo Festival, and which is in Tennessee. And then they were finishing with Milwaukee Summerfest, so sort of up the top in the middle of America. And they had to get from the bottom in the middle to the top in the middle. And they just literally, it was routing, okay, we need to drive the bus for five days. What wow. cities are you driving through? That's, that's how they ended up playing Tulsa, Oklahoma on a Tuesday night and selling 2,000 tickets there. Wow. And when you're selling 2,000 tickets in Tulsa on a Tuesday, you're doing you've okay. broken America. Yeah, you're doing well. It's a great story. So, John, let's... Move. They then, of course, broke up at the end of that record. Did they really? Well, Chris and Miles left the band. Oh, that's and, what Andrew, they did. And then, Andrew and then, then he... Andrew reformed the band with new players, but it took a couple of years to get back on the in the saddle, and it was never quite the same. Did you continue to work? No, with no, I only did the first record. Only the first record. I, yeah. I, we, I helped Andrew get back in the saddle. I stayed with him until right. he went off to LA to make that second record, and and we set him up with new management because, you know, what, you had enough at that point. Sorry, you had enough of the band. Yeah, at that I, point? I couldn't get. We had three kids under the age of five. And you were like, like I, I just. Do this. It was. It was really. You know, it had been a very for all of the individuals. Like I like them all individually. Yeah, of course. But they just. You know, I think I don't think it's any secret. They've talked about it. They just. You know, they really didn't get on. Yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Now let's finish off the hypotheticals with the idea that um, there's a book being written about you. You know, or that someone a publisher comes to you and says, "We're going to write a book about you." <laughs> Right now, you're not writing it. We want someone else to write it, who, but you can choose that person. Who would who would write that book for you, John? Who would who would you have write the John Watson oh, story, God, and who would write the foreword for that book? Are they the same person? Because oh, it, you know, God only knows. I would you know I would never ask anybody. I've got lots of friends that are writers. Can you come you from know? a journalism background? Yeah, Surely yeah. You have got- well, John O'Donnell knows me best, so let's not get him to write. No, the book. don't get him to write. Uh, you write, write the truth. <laughs> Well, yeah, John would write the choice. That's why we wouldn't have him do it. Um, I'll come at it more as, as a fan of writing, shall yeah, I, with the yes, foreword? Yes, Because I don't, I, you know, so. I would hate having a no, As a fan of writing. That's... As a fan of writing, I would have Gideon Hay um, or Michael Lewis or Maureen Dowd write the intro. They don't know me at all, but you're asking me who do I yeah, like do to like? read yeah. most? Yes. I love, I mean, Gideon Hay and like all three of those people have an ability to just make language sing. You know, you read them on the page. Yeah, I was a writer. But I wasn't a capital I'd W like writer. Those, like those guys. But those, you read their their prose and you go, I should never type again. It's poetic. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. just, you know, their ability, and they're all quite different, but their ability to just make language 
snap, crackle and pop. Yeah. You know, it's a yeah. real gift and it's a fun thing to sort of engage with. So yeah, any excuse, if my book had to be the excuse. Now, let's, this is coming in from a left field, right? I know you've had um, many situations where you've been willed out to, to, you know, in political circumstances in behalf of the music industry. So let's pretend that you're now, you know, you're retired, not retired, you're retired from music management or artist management and you get into politics like your, your great friend Peter Garrett did and your Minister for the Arts. What would you do, particularly in terms of domestic music, that we're not doing today? Well, look, I'm, I am very um, – I've been very involved in mm. trying to help um, the current Minister for the Arts, you know, develop the, the program around Music Australia, as have many other people in the industry. Mm. Um, and I'm very supportive of um, his attempts to do it. Not everything that he's chosen to do is how I would have chosen to do it, but I am 100% confident that he is genuinely trying to improve um, – the, the lot of the music industry and it's the first time in my god help us 35 years in the music industry that we have had um a genuine sense in canberra in the in the cabinet that um contemporary music really matters and needs to be front and center in the discussions you know our deal as, a, as an industry we've traditionally been terrible at dealing with government um you know traditionally our deal with with government has been if you leave us alone we'll leave you alone um, and I think that if COVID taught us anything, it's that we just can't afford to not be in the room where it happens. Absolutely. So, you know, as my degrees in politics, I did a, amongst everything else I was doing in the 80s, I also did a degree in politics. I've done other study along the way as well. Um, but the, so I've always had a lifelong interest in politics, as you say. Um, so I think that what's being done now is a really great start. I think we need to see how that unfolds before we figure out what comes next. I do think that it's, a very delicate um, balance to strike. We need to, to borrow a cliche, teach people how to fish rather mm. than giving them fish. That's a great line. So I think that... Very um, apt. And I think that the if you look at how being given fish has affected the film industry, in my opinion, it's made the industry, you know, really highly dependent upon government largesse or quasi-government largesse. Mm and has to some extent um, diminished the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, the freewheeling cowboy and cowgirl nature of, um, of rock and roll and hip hop. And, you know, um, and I think that it's, it would be a pity if the government has to find a way to support that is it, kind is of Is it initiative. because they're expecting a, uh, certain KPIs? Uh, or, you know, like, no, I, I think if it's- If we're gonna put money into it, look at what we've done. You know, no, I think I don't know that it's necessarily the government's fault. I think it's no. the industry. If, if if you give people money for failing, yeah. they will be quite comfortable with failing. And they'll keep taking it. And they'll keep taking yeah. it. And you will end up rewarding people who are really good at convincing people to give them money rather than people who are really good at making great art, you know, and, and striking a chord with audiences. So I don't think it's coincidental that a lot of the biggest Australian movies were made by people who weren't actually part of the industry. Mm right mm. um in different ways sure. you know whether it's rachel perkins from from her outsider her cultural outsider status or whether it's you know i can't remember his name the guy that made kenny or paul hogan before that like there's there's a lot of the bigger and strictly ballroom with mm. with with ted albert and there's dominic with and Gedinsky with chopper exactly right yeah. a yeah. great example mm. um you know and, and michelle bennett in that case too and, and um so that they 
I think that we need to watch ourselves as an industry. Um, we absolutely need more training. We absolutely need safer workplaces. We absolutely need a pathway to help more managers develop because that's the missing piece for so many careers. Mm. And I would, and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the 22 year old version yeah, of, that are of coming through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think all of those things are important. But in doing that, we have to find a way to do it that at the very least doesn't extinguish, doesn't turn down that flame of, in the best possible sense, hustlers. Mm. You know, people that actually want to get out there, put their own, you know, um, reputations of money on the line, yeah. take a risk. Put your money you know. where your mouth is. Yeah, and I think yeah. that that's, so it's a very delicate thing to do. And when you look at, say, for Canada, for example, which is often cited with some good reason as a template for us, there are, there is a lot of mediocrity that, that has been enabled by government money. I don't know that that's a great use of taxpayer funds, and I certainly know it's not great to listen to. Yeah, I could have, is, is there a permeating sense of, of the industry being risk-averse and, and it's reflected in the way the government's treating us, if that makes sense? Um, I think... You know, let's, I think let's, the, let's play the safe card, let's be safe. Right. Let's not, you know, if we're going to put give these guys this money, let's make sure that it's going to work. And, and by doing that, you're not, as you're saying, you're not, you're not you know, fueling the entrepreneurial fire. I think there's entrepreneurial people out there um, and smaller companies. I think that, you know, one, one of the hard parts when we talk about the music industry is that there's no such thing as the music industry, right? Like mm. there's the record industry, That's there's right. the touring industry, yeah. there's so, and, and different risk appetites and risk profiles in all of that. You know, it's a weird time. You know, I think we've got great label heads at the moment. Like, you mm. know, all three of the major labels are run by people who are genuine music fans who are really approachable, who are not about their own egos. Like it's it's kind of pretty great. But they arrive at a time where it's probably the hardest it's been to break an Australian artist in Australia since before the Easy Beats. And that's because, do you think that's because the globalisation of music? So, you know, you're, if you're a female hip-hop act right now in Australia, your competition is not the, you know the girl in the next suburb or the next next city, it's Lizzo. It's potentially Rihanna. It's potentially Beyonce. Is globalisation causing... Yes, or- yes, it is. And and I think, you know, in lots of different ways. Mm. But fundamentally, music discovery is happening, you know, online, on TikTok, and to a lesser extent on streaming platforms. In real, can, in real time. In real time. On top of that. And the local artists are, generally speaking, at a handicap in those environments because... Um, both the curation and the algorithms of the playlists that move the, the meter most, mm. not necessarily of the number of playlists which they love to cite or the number sure. of tracks, but the things that move the meter the most, they're created overseas. So most of the big Australian hits of recent years have been big hits overseas that boomerang back, Riptide, Dance Monkey, you know, um, the um, uh, Masked Wolf. Kid Leroy. Uh, yeah, Kid Leroy, big time. And and that's and so it's a great story for export, no doubt in the world about that. Like the world's flat, right? The old Thomas Friedman line, and so that's great because it means that it's much easier now than at any time in history for Australian artists to get heard overseas. They don't need to wait for some, you know, fat middle-aged bloke behind a desk in New York to say, "Yeah, I'll spend half a million bucks on payoff like on a video." Yeah, mm. to to just to see if you've got a hit. If you've mm. got a hit, you're going to know it within 48 hours yeah. because all of the, the metrics, metrics there. the metrics Absolutely. will just be going exponential adoption curves, right? Um, so that's that's a good news story for export, but it's a really hard news story for culture in this country. You know, it, I like to sort of talk about it in the in the using the example of the Great Australian Songbook. If you think about 
you know, the Great Australian Song, we can every year there's two or three songs added. There used to be two or three songs mm. added to it. Mm. You know, a, a from our roster, you know, a, a, a Scar or a Steer, a Straight Lines, a Somebody That I Used To Know, a Lanterns. Sure. Um, you know, but when you get past about 2013, 14, they really drop off, you know, Dwindles. and the ones that are there are only the ones that have happened overseas and come back, mm. um, which means that a lot of our biggest songs, and that's always which is some of our hits have been global hits, you know, sure. Locomotion was a hit overseas and, right. and, and so forth. But, you know, there's also been really, you know, Case Arm was never a hit anywhere else, you know, right. um, 10 to 1, all the oil songs, Pound the Passion, US Forces, they were never hits anywhere else, um, and, and a thousand others. A so more. we've stopped adding to the Great Australian Songbook largely, um, due to all of this. And so it has their economic consequences to it, but more to the point, there are cultural consequences. And for me, the moment that I was, I'm particularly conscious of it because all of my artists predate all of this and they're still getting asked to go and play their hits on these big mass events because only those songs have the well, mass. Well, nostalgia's king right now, isn't nostalgia's it? is king, but it's also because you know, now it's harder and harder to get moments you know, which mm. everyone's into, like the Olympics or the Matildas or whatever, right? Yep. It's harder and harder to find these Taylor Swift moments that we can largely all agree on. Um, so that's part of it. But it's also partly this cultural thing where it's the American repertoire and, you know, and, and other countries that's dominating. And the, the moment that I, you know, so what they do is they'll put a new artist on, but only if they play a familiar old song, you know. All, all the time. And so when, you know, the moment that really killed for me was um, when the, the grand final was in Perth a couple of years back and Baker Boy's on. You know, now here's an incredible Indigenous artist who's got all the wind at his back. It's a great moment. Mm. He should be allowed. You know, he's, he's got fantastic songs of his own that can present great in that environment. Yeah, they might not be familiar, but they're going to blow some minds, right? But instead, he has to cover a Kylie Minogue song before he's allowed to play his own song, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm like, that's, that's not right. Mm. You know, I like, understand it from a rating standpoint. What if someone decides to go and put on a cup of tea because they don't know the song? But, you know, as an Australian, don't we want to hear these voices? And that's what the, you know, the cultural policy of, of the current government is seeking to do. Being, being, you know, being risk averse. It's yeah. permeating everywhere. I think, that's prob- I think there's definitely an element to it. But the reason why it's risk averse is because... They're return averse. That's right. Right? That's like right. You, you've, people are, it's not just that people are kind of um, being needlessly conservative. They're being conservative for a reason. There's no Australian songs in the charts. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? The it's last not, few weeks have been diabolical. We are back. So, you know, as an older person and as a total music nerd, um, you know, I know Australian music history. And yeah. before the Easy Beats came along and certainly before Countdown and Mushroom and you know, all those other things and Double J and Ram and Juke came along in the early 70s. But pre, pre-66, Australian music was second class. Yeah. You know, yeah, we had Johnny O'Keefe and Cole Joy, Little Do, Patty. Probably doing covers. You know, but largely trying to get the American mm. song before it was a hit That's here. Right. That's right. There are a few exceptions, but, you know, generally speaking, yes. Mm. And there was definitely that sense of if you couldn't get a real artist, get an Australian artist, right? And thankfully, through you know, the, the work of people who came along before us, we grew up in, a, in an era where Australian music, you know, was at least as good as American music and was often thought of as better than and more relevant to our experience. You know, Don Walker's songs, Paul Kelly's songs, Midnight Oil's songs. We were spoiled for choice, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Missy Higgins' songs. Proper storytellers. Yeah. You know, th- these these songs, that the stories that they told mm. were, the sto- were, were about us, mm. you know. Archie Roach's songs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the... 
the ability um, of of my kids and your kids mm. to have that experience is now they no longer have that ability, right? Because we're being um, Australian music is falling out of the charts. And as a final thing on this, there's some interesting academic writing because in most countries, streaming has increased local chart share, um, particularly enhanced by language, as you can imagine. In France, there are more people now listening to French music than there used to be the case. And the same is true in most places because there is a strong radio cultural quotas. difference. And yeah. radio quotas, I imagine. Well, a little bit, but no, it's changed. Streaming has definitely helped local music in most places. And streaming, like they have a name for it, of course, all these things have buzzwords. They call it glocalization. Yeah, right. <laughs> Localization due to globalization. But, um, and it's pretty true yes. you know, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, and so forth. The only exceptions to it are in what they call satellite states. So in Germany, German language music is up. Mm-hmm. But in Austria and Switzerland, who work as satellites of Germany, Austrian and Swiss acts are way down. There you go. Right? In, um, and, and so in my, there are other examples. In, in um, France, local music is way up. In Belgium and Luxembourg, who are very interesting friends, countries, local yeah. music down. Yeah. Right? And so my theory of the case is that Australia America. is effectively a satellite to America because yeah. we import so much American culture. And as a result, we are Luxembourg to their France. Yeah, right. We are Switzerland to their Germany. And unless something is really proactively done, we are going to continue to feel we're going to stop adding songs to the Great Australian Songbook, and it's happening right now. Well, let's let's finish with this then, John. How do we break that chain? So I'm a I'm a big fan of trying to lean in more on on quotas on streaming. I'm a big fan of trying to get more, um, you know, active local presentation for TikTok. My my view on this, and you know, it's the kind of view you'd expect from someone who's always been a little to the left in their politics, is that. Um, they actually that while it's really important to have free enterprise, free enterprise only manages to exist because of the resources provided by taxpayers. So you know, if it wasn't for the NBN that we all paid for, um, there would be no internet by which that for them to stream That's right. their 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 music and their content. The price of accessing all of Australia's consumers, paid for by Australia's consumers, in my personal opinion, yes. should be that you have to be. Um, at the very least, treating Australian artists equally, which they're not, they're not in they're my mind. At all. And haven't, haven't you know, for a long time. Now, that's not the fault of the local companies. There are people at the local companies who are trying to make a difference. There are people at the local companies creating great curated playlists. Mm. But the reality is if you're a hip-hop fan, you're probably not going to download Australian hip-hop playlist. You're going to download Rap Caviar, you know. And if you're on TikTok, the algorithm's going to steer you towards, you know, Drake or, or, or Jay-Z long before it's going to steer you towards to the Hilltop Baker Hoods. Boy, yeah, you know, or, or, Baker or the Hoods. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think that, you know, something needs to be done in that space and, and they will, you know, tech companies will always claim that this is old world thinking and that it's anti-competitive and everything else. But, I you know, I'm a big, um, and that it's bad for the economy, but I don't think we're just trying to build an economy. We're trying to build a society. And the society requires Australian songs and Australian voices. And for that to happen, um, we used to have a head start. There was a formal head start, notionally at least, in terms of radio quotas. There was an informal head start in terms of the fact that, you know, hey, hey, it's Saturday, needed to put five acts on every week. And Australian artists were around a lot more to do it. So there were more Australian acts on, hey, hey, it's Saturday, than might otherwise have been the case, right? There were various built-in 
if you like, barriers to entry for overseas artists. We've gone to the exact opposite. The barriers to entry are now all for our artists to reach our audience. We can't get onto the overseas playlist because we're ingested in Australia. It's treated as Australian artists. You can have the real rap playlist or you can have the Australian one. And how's the the, insa- the Clayton one? Yeah, and 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 their argument back is that they, they they sort of smile, nod knowingly, shake their head with a little bit of pity, and go, "Yeah, but we really know our audience, and you don't, mm. right?" Mm. Okay, so if they really know their audience, they currently serve up classic rock playlists that have no Australian music on them. Now, I was around in the eighties, and so was you. Was any Australian music popular in the 1980s? Because according to Spotify, it was not. And, and the Australian oh. music fans, when they listen to classic music, would serious? rather hear bands that were big in America, like Styx and Journey and Aria Speedwagon, who were huge in America and never really broke here in the same way as they broke in the States. That's what you get for classic rock. Alternatively, if you can't get the real classic rock, you can get the Clayton's classic rock of Australian classic rock yeah. and then you can download a playlist which only has Australian music well that doesn't represent the experience either no because experience... we had we had models we had hunters and collectors and, so, we, and had we had, had audience, that alongside had church. and yeah. we had that alongside other stuff and I'm not this isn't about you know glory days I'm using it as an example of the fact that if you want to really represent consumer taste and you want to serve up to your subscribers the best possible experience that is likely to match what they want. And I say this, imagining standing behind the counter of that record store and looking at the person in the eye. What does that person want to hear? That person wants to probably hear mainly international music, but also a good chunk of Australian music. And outside of a couple of the major playlists, that is not how these ecosystems are built. Now, there was a moment where addressing it in the streaming ecosystem, I think could have made a difference. That boat has probably sailed because I'm not sure that much music discovery is happening in this ecosystem anymore. It could still help. It it, it was happening though, wasn't you know, it? But I think that when TikTok took off yeah. and became the main place of music discovery for the time being, the genie's really out of the bottle there. That becomes algorithmic. That becomes about, well, you know, what responsibility does that app have for what it's serving up? What responsibility does it have at the moment for the fact, by the way, that if you Google you know, the yes referendum, the first five results, it shows you a no. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. just true. Try yes, it. yes, yes. No, you no, know, no. And, and so um, I think that there's, and this there's this idea that, well, you can't question technology. Of course you can question mm. technology. You know, it, they, didn't, they didn't get presented on stone tablets from a mountaintop. That's right. They're a business that wants to work in our country. They want to use all of our infrastructure. They want to have staff that were trained in schools that we paid for. If some of them get sick, they go to hospitals that we pay for. They drive to work on roads that we pay for and their content is streamed on an internet that we pay for. They are corporate citizens of this country, even though they don't generally pay tax. And in my view, they should be trying to work with Australia to ensure that its culture is not at a handicap. Ideally, they should actually be trying to elevate it, but at the very least, don't um, squash it. And I feel that that's what's happening at the moment. Not, I want to be really clear about this, not as a deliberate choice by people in Australia. I think those people generally have good intent. But I think by the process of a global multinational company that has its own global policies, they have two arms and one leg tied behind the back in what they're allowed to do. And I think it will take the government stepping up on this eventually in order and waving a big stick in order to bring them to the table to get some kind of um, recognition 
of the impact that's happening. It's not a coincidence that we've gone from having lots of Australian music in our charts to, to little to no Australian yeah, music yeah. in our chart. And the Australian music that is in our chart is in excess and cold chisel and, you know, older artists, yeah. so generally speaking. Or, and let's be clear about this, or Australian artists who've broken around the world like Kid Leroy and Vance Joy. Yeah. There, is, there are big upsides to this. The export upside is real. It's a wonderful opportunity for people getting into business. I'm not being... Things were better in my day, doom and gloom. Of course. But I'm saying that there are upsides and downsides, and the downside is not just economic, it's cultural. I think so too. I think I think we've become or becoming culturally stagnant, aren't we? Yeah, well, I think, we beca- I think we're going back. So Australia used to be, in the 50s and, and, mm. and, and thereabouts, Australia was a little, a little Britain, mm. right? Yes. Um, and, okay, we've drifted to America, but we're becoming little America again. Yeah. There, there was a period of time there, our films... Our music, our books, our plays—you yeah. know—you knew they were Australian. They're Australian, yeah. and there was a pride in that, and there was a um, a quality that came from seeing your stories, you know, on stage in the broadest possible sense of a story and a stage. Um, that I think was really affirming to many people. Now, of course, there are many people who didn't get to see their stories on stages at that time. People of color, you know, people of different sexuality, and so forth. That was, you know, wrong, and that's now. You know, it's not changing. how that's it's changing, changing. Yeah. and so so that that's an area which can be improved as well. That's but awesome. but the the reality is that there's no real. It's great that my kids want to go and see. You know, I loved Hamilton. It's fantastic, mm. right? But you know, where's the Australian versions of those things? You know, why aren't we finding a way to put Fangirls, which is an Australian musical that's just extraordinary? Mm. Um, why aren't we finding a way to make that? The, the buzz that it should be, mm. you know, just to pick the first thing that came to my head. There should sure. be twenty no, no. others as well. Really, but, really you know, point. Um, so you know, and the same is true in music, and the same is true in books and film. And so you're saying there's a cultural cringe still? Yeah, and I, I'm saying that the that with the globalization of culture, what used to be a head start has become a handicap a in our own market. Yeah. yeah, it has helped us in terms of our ability to export. Yeah, because we no longer have to get past as many gatekeepers. To get heard overseas, we can talk directly to overseas fans, and if they like it, then someone overseas is going to go. My fan, my my customers are liking this. Let's find a way to give more of it because I'll make money. So you know, it's a good export story, mm-hmm. and it's why you know um, to go back to the question you asked me about a year and a half ago um, <laughs> that you know you asked what would you do as arts minister? Um, export has to be at the center of everything mm-hmm. because now more than ever the opportunity is global. And the ability to break here requires you to get some momentum overseas to boomerang it back into this market. You know, it's a really great time, not just for the headline-grabbing artists, right? Because it used to be that, that you know, if an artist happened overseas, it was a really big, successful artist, right? They're top 10 in America or top 10 in the UK. Now there are all these artists who are over there selling 3,000, 5,000 tickets. Yeah, having sustainable careers, right? Tash Sultana, Chet Faker. And then, you know, at at another level up above that, you know, Rufus DeSol is like a huge live act. Now they haven't made top 10 in America. That doesn't mean that they're not phenomenally... relevant. Relevant, Mm. making work that's engaged, you know, generating export earnings for our country, putting Australia on the map around the world and all the other upsides that come with export. So it's a great, great time for export. And, you know, it used to be, oh, it'd be great if we could get it going overseas. Whereas now it's like, well, if we don't get it going overseas, we're screwed. Where do we go? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. John, look, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but thanks for your time today. I mean, I'm probably going to have more questions for you. We can probably do some subsequent recording down the track because I I think there's quite a few that I've missed. But we've spoken for over an hour. So thanks again. And um, 
let's hope you know the government at the very least sees what we're seeing and what we're feeling. I, I feel that this government, you know, the, the the prime minister and the minister for the arts are you know probably the two biggest music fans that, that we've, oh, that we've had in Albanese shows. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know, and they're not just sort of bung it on because you know they were coming to gigs ten years ago and you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we're well positioned for it, but I think we need to, as an industry, be conscious of trying to present a more united voice, a more professional voice, a more cohesive, coherent voice that understands that you know there are many demands on the public purse and the answer's not always going to be about spending money. Mm. The answer might be more about establishing protocols that allow the market to do what the market should be doing rather than you know, removing what are effectively distortions to the market that are happening as a result of this satellite thing that we talked about earlier. Are you sure you don't want to be in politics after you finish in music management? I'm, a, I'm not <laughs> sure I don't want to be in politics. I, I'm, I, I think politics, I love, I love following politics. I find it endlessly fascinating. I have nothing but admiration for people that, that give up their life to serve in politics, but I do not have it in me to, to do You know what, what John? I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Over and out. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thanks, mate.